Well, let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12 this morning. So this is somewhat of a, a second look at a passage we started into last week. But I want us to focus primarily on the prophecy of Agabus. And the reason why we need to focus on this is because this particular prophecy has become one of the battleground passages in which people believe that there is a second gift of prophecy that differs from the typical Old Testament view of prophecy that is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. And we'll look at this as we begin to look through this passage. But let's, uh, in Acts chapter 21, I'd like to read for you, starting in verse 10. And we'll read down uh, through verse 12 and focus primarily on verse 11. So as I read this for you, I remind you that I'm reading the inspired Word of God. So please give reverent attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 10. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Then when we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. Now what I'd like to do in uh, beginning our analysis of this prophecy of Agabus is really to start with the prophets in the Old Testament to establish a standard basis, if you will, for understanding the gift of prophecy. Now, in the Old Testament, when the prophets spoke, they were God's mouthpiece to not only His people, but to the world. Their messages were 100% inspired by God, totally without error, totally authoritative for God's people and everyone else. The test of a prophet, therefore, is given to us. So the test of a true prophet It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And it goes like this. The the prophet who speaks the word presumptuously, in other words, he he presumes it's coming from God. The, The prophet who speaks the word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. Now it's interesting, he thinks it's coming from God, but God says, which I have not commanded him to speak or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Serious thing to be a prophet of God. Verse 21, You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the, which the Lord has not spoken? How do you determine a true prophet from a false prophet? Verse 22, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, That is a thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. 
So the way you determine between a true prophet and a false prophet is if it comes true, he's a true prophet. If it doesn't come true, then he's clearly not a prophet speaking a word from God. It's interesting, later on in 1 Samuel, of Samuel the prophet, it says he grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. So all of his words came to pass. So prophecy in the Old Testament is a miraculous gift of God where He gives a spontaneous divine revelation to His prophets which is inspired, inerrant, and fully authoritative. Okay, now when we come to the New Testament, there are some of the brethren that uh, take a different view. They actually believe now there are two gifts of prophecy. One of them is likened unto the Old Testament version, and the other is a New Testament variation, which is a lesser gift of prophecy. And uh, obviously some of the uh, proponents of this view, one of them is Wayne Grudem. And uh, Wayne Grudem is a good man. He, ha- he has written an excellent systematic theology. He's reformed. He's very biblical, except many differ with his view of prophecy that he puts forth not only in his uh, systematic theology, but other books that he's written on. And this is what I primarily want to interact with you about this morning. His view, I'm just using him as one of the main proponents of this view. There are others that teach it as well within the body of Christ. Primarily within what we would call the charismatic Calvinists. And so this view is quite prominent in, in those circles. But uh, many of us believe that it's, uh, it's, not, it's not biblically sound. But this view goes like this. There's actually two gifts of prophecy. You have the Old Testament prophecy, which is 100% inspired and errant and authoritative. But then you have a New Testament gift of prophecy that can actually be a mixture of truth and error. This New Testament gift of prophecy, according to Grudem, is telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. So that's the New Testament gift. Telling something that, that God has spontaneously brought to mind. Now that could be mixed with some error in their view. They receive a revelation from God which is, has no error, but they either understand it in a way that misunderstands it, or they communicate it in a way which miscommunicates it so that there can be error mixed in. But, but, but the whole thing is called a prophecy. It is a, it is a report. It is telling something that God has put on your mind, and some of it could be true, some of it could be false and misleading, but it's a, it's the gift of prophecy. The whole package is the gift of prophecy. They would also say, therefore, it's not equal to Scripture. doesn't have the same authority as Scripture. But it's a very human and partially mistaken report of something that the Holy Spirit brought to your mind. And that's they say, is they, the New Testament gift of prophecy. Now, just in developing this idea, and we're going to get to how Agabus's prophecy, they claim, is an example of this New Testament gift of prophecy that is a mixture of truth and error. We'll get into that in a moment. 
But part of what they say is that the Old Testament gift of prophecy, which is inerrant, authoritative, 100% inspired by God, is found only among the New Testament apostles. Only the apostles had the same gift of prophecy that you find in the Old Testament. Everybody else in the New Testament, among all the churches at Corinth and every place else, when they speak of the gift of prophecy, it's this secondary gift, which is less authoritative, which can be mixed with error. But that is the gift of prophecy, they say, in the New Testament. Now they find support for this idea that the, that the apostles only have the inerrant gift of prophecy in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. And this is how they interpret it. The verse says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. And so they argue that here, obviously we're talking about laying the foundation of the church with God's inspired truth. Okay, that's the foundation. And the foundation is made up of apostles and prophets, but they say these are really referring to the same people. Apostolic prophets. So that the apostles had the true Old Testament gift of prophecy. That's the, that's the link they're making. How do they justify that view? Well, they make reference to a Greek grammar rule called the Granville Sharp Rule. And just let me try to summarize briefly for you the rule. It says that when there is one article, that would be the word the, before two nouns connected by an and, it makes both the nouns refer to the same person. Thus, in Ephesians 2.20, you have the apostles and prophets. The two nouns are connected with the word and. Only one article, the. It's not the apostles and the prophets, just the apostles the apostles and prophets, that they say the rule therefore makes this into the same people group. So the apostles and the prophets really refer to the same people. These are the apostles who are apostolic prophets. Same group. So they say that justifies us. The apostles had the Old Testament gift which was inerrant, 100% inspired, but the rest of the prophets of the New Testament have this lower gift, which can be a mixture of truth and error. And and you can understand they want that because everybody wants a personal word from God, right? I mean, you know, it's... And so they're inclined to, to this view because not all of the prophecies that are rendered today are completely true. They have error mixed in them. Okay, so they quote the Granville Sharp rule thinking that supports their position. But there's one major problem. It does not support their position. The Granville Sharp rule is stipulated very clearly that for this rule to apply, the nouns must be in the singular. They must be in the singular. So look at the word apostles and prophets. Is that singular or plural? Plural. The rule does not apply. They're misusing the rule. Now, I don't know how much Greek Grudem and others have had. I majored in Greek when I was in seminary. But by the time you get to intermediate Greek grammar, you get exposed to the Granville Sharp rule. By the time you get to advanced Greek grammar, you get into it more deeply. 
So I don't know why they're, they're trying to use this rule to support this view in Ephesians 2.20, but it doesn't work. What Ephesians 2.20 is saying that the foundation of the church is laid by two different gifts, two different people groups, apostles and prophets. And the prophets are the same gift as referred to through the rest of the New Testament, we believe. So you can't somehow try to say that obviously the prophets here are part of the foundation, which means it should be inerrant. It should be 100% inspired. And that is exactly true. But there's no way linking the prophets as the same people as the apostles. These are two separate groups of men. So this whole support for their particular view of the gift is not substantiated by Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 20. Something else that they also claim is that the New Testament prophets do not speak with the same authority as the Old Testament prophets or the words of Scripture. This is part of their understanding of this, I'll call it a grade B gift of prophecy. That the prophets don't speak with the same authority as the Old Testament prophets or the words of Scripture. Therefore, the prophets that are in these groups today speaking their prophecies, they, they wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you put it on the same level of Scripture. Mainly because it has a mixture of truth and error in it. The revelation they supposedly receive is infallible. This is how they interpret the modern gift today. It's infallible. They get a revelation, but they taint that revelation, as I said earlier, by either their misunderstanding of it or miscommunicating of it. But the prophecy is just the report of it. That's their understanding of this New Testament gift of prophecy. It's a blend of divine revelation and human interpretation or commentary, which can be mistaken. Thus, it's not equal to Scripture. So, an example of that would be like this. Say, someone comes up to another person in the church. They say, God has given me a word for you. God has given me a revelation of prophetic word, a word of knowledge for you, that in three days, God is going to bless you in an incredible way. That's the word. That's the prophecy. And they share that with someone. Well, three days go by. Nothing great happened. Fourth day. Fifth day, in the mail, you get your federal income tax return check that's been delayed because of all the COVID virus stuff. That's it. That's the fulfillment of the prophecy. God has done something great to me. That's what the prophecy said to me. Even though the prophecy said three days and it happened on the fifth day, well, that's okay because New Testament prophecies can be a mixture of truth with some error in it. But that was God's word of prophecy to me. That would be kind of like an example of how this would operate in these churches today. Dangerous to me. But that's the way they would normally kind of express it. That you can get a word of prophecy, a word of knowledge, or a word of truth, or something to share to someone that the Spirit of God told you to say, but you miss some of the details of it, you misunderstand it, or you miscommunicate it, so there can be wrong information mixed in, but that's still the gift of prophecy. And this is what's being advanced today in many churches. Well, with that in mind, let's now consider Acts 21, verse 11, because 
they claim that the gift of prophecy that Agabus had was in this New Testament grade B category because when he gave his prophecy about what would happen to Paul, it did not all literally come true in specific detail. So here's the prophecy in verse 11. This is from the New American Standard. It says this, well let me just um, read the whole verse. In coming to us, he, that would be Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, that's the prophecy. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, if you flip forward, let's read when this actually is taking place in chapter 21, starting in verse 31. So now Paul has gotten to Jerusalem. He's gone in the temple And all this stuff is now about to be fulfilled. So verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report, that be the Jews, seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort and all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once, he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he began asking who he was and what he had done. Okay, we'll stop there. Now notice, it says that the commander in verse 33 came up and took hold of Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So they said, aha, here's a mistake. Agabus said the Jews were going to bind Paul But it really was the Roman commander that bound Paul. And the second mistake they say is that Agabus said that the Jews would deliver Paul into the hands of the Romans and really the Romans came and rescued Paul out of their hands. So that's the second mistake. Now it's still a word of prophecy, but it literally didn't come true in in the detail. That's their argument. And on the surface, you, at first glance, you may think, well, there's some merit to that. So that's their interpretation of the prophecy of Agabus. It had some truth in it, it had some error in it, and that's the nature of the New Testament gift of prophecy today. It's different than the Old Testament version. Now, as we begin to look at this, I think we need to, to consider why... I think their view is wrong. As you begin to look at this passage again, I want you to notice first off that Agabus, the prophet, we've run into him before. Agabus has a track record. Remember all the way back in Acts chapter 11, it says, referring to Agabus, that he began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. He's given a prophecy and it came true exactly as he said it would. Okay, So he has a track record of being totally correct in what he prophesies. According to Luke. 
who says, this took place in the reign of Claudius. It came to pass, just like he said it would. So we have a track record of Agabus speaking prophecies that came true completely as he said. Secondly, notice in the prophecy back in verse 11 that Agabus explicitly claims that he spoke the words of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. And then he gives a quote from the Holy Spirit. He did not say, the Spirit of God gave me a general message and I'm communicating that to you. I may, I may miss some of the facts, but you know, here's the general impression that I got. Here it is. He's not saying that. He is very adamant, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So he's quoting from the Spirit of God. So he doesn't say the Holy Spirit just give me the outline. I'm filling in the details. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Now, if prophecy from the Spirit, the Spirit said a prophecy that has error in it, then it's very hard not to accuse the Holy Spirit of making a mistake, which would be blasphemy, or that the Holy Spirit is culpable of making an error, which is also blasphemy. So again, the way Luke records it, the way Luke heard it, the way Agabus said it, it's attributed directly to the words of the Holy Spirit. This is not part spirit, part man commentary. This is all the Holy Spirit. So you definitely have to keep that in mind. Peter goes on to say later on in his second letter that no prophecy of Scripture ever came by someone's own interpretation. But they want us to believe that now it does come by one's own interpretation. It's what you hear the Spirit say and then you interpret it and then you give the report. Some of it could be true, some of it could be false. That's the New Testament. That's the new version of the gift of prophecy. But I think that has problems. We also need to keep in mind that when Luke records Agabus's prophecy, he does it in the context of these sign actions in verse 11. Remember, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands. And this is exactly the way the Old Testament prophets oftentimes communicated their prophecies. Remember last week I talked about how Isaiah did that and Jeremiah did that and Ezekiel did it. Remember, Ezekiel did the little siege wall around Jerusalem or right, up, right in front of the, of the city of Jerusalem to indicate the siege that would take place around the whole city when the Babylonians came in. And, and so Luke is communicating Agabus right in line with the Old Testament prophets because he used similar kinds of object lessons or sign actions just like the Old Testament prophets did who were certainly inerrant and authoritative. And Luke is presenting Agabus in that same light. So there's no indication that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, thinks there was anything inaccurate about what, what uh, Agabus actually said. Now, in actually looking at the prophecy in light of its fulfillment, there are two different ways to harmonize this. One of them is to compare what Agabus says in chapter 21, verse 11, with what Paul will say later on in Acts 28, verse 17, when he's in Rome and he is incarcerated. 
And he is talking about what happened to him in the temple. And it's interesting that he uses the very same words or similar words. Notice in Acts 28, verse 17, he's basically saying exactly what Agabus said would happen to him in the temple. He said in Acts 28, verse 17, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So when Paul is thinking about what the Jews did to him, he says, I was delivered over to the Romans. Okay, well that fits. That's exactly the word that Agabus uses. He would be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles or the Romans. Same exact Greek word. So when Paul's thinking about back on it, he's, he's using the very same words that Agabus did. I was delivered into the hands of the Romans. And it implies that it was from Jerusalem, that is from the Jews who did that. So Paul is using that same expression. What about the binding? Well, he says, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And the word prisoner is a word that comes from the same root word that refers to bind in verse 11. The word bind is the Greek word deo. The word prisoner comes from that word deo. It's decimos. And it means the one who is bound. A prisoner is one who is bound. So it seems as if Paul in Acts 28 verse 17 is saying that when he was arrested in Jerusalem, he was bound by the Jews. Now Luke doesn't record that later on in the chapter. But Paul is saying, I was, I was delivered as a prisoner. A prisoner is someone who's bound. And then once they delivered him to the Romans, and the Romans put the, their own metal handcuffs on him, the two chains on him as well, because that was their way of arresting someone. Just like today, if you get arrested, what, what does the policeman do? I know you've all had first-hand experience of this. You get handcuffed, right? So that's what the Romans would have done. But the Jews would have done the same thing. It's not unusual when Jews arrested people that they would bind them. Matter of fact, when Herod arrested John the Baptist, it said he, he arrested him and had him bound. So it's not unusual, Luke doesn't record it later on in chapter 21, but it's not unusual to understand that that happened. Paul says, I was a prisoner, I was a bound one, and I was delivered over into the hands of the Romans. Now, now uh, Grudem will say, well, that refers to uh, the later passage in Acts 23, not Acts 21. But the time when Paul was delivered from, by the Jews into the hands of the Romans was in Acts 21. It fits better than it does with Acts 23. Just by way of comparison. So when Paul is thinking about what happened to him, he uses the language that Agabus used. So it seems like what Agabus said would happen to the Apostle Paul uh, came true just as Agabus said that it would. Thomas Schreiner in his uh, book on spiritual gifts, which deals in more detail with this whole issue, says apparently Paul didn't think Agabus was mistaken since he says that he was delivered or handed over by the Jews to the Romans. So that's exactly what Agabus said would happen. And again, the binding is not unusual. The Jews would have bound him maybe with ropes. When the Romans came in, they would have put the chains on him because that's how they did it. So there's no way to say that, well, 
you know, the prophecy of Agabus was partly right and partly wrong. There's just not support for that. In my view. And in many others. There's another way to interpret Agabus' prophecy that also makes it completely accurate. And this comes from Dr. Bruce Compton in an article that he wrote, The Continuation of New Testament Prophecy and a Closed Canon, a Critique of Wayne Grudem's Two Levels of New Testament Prophecy. And he said that the prophecy can be interpreted where no such errors are found. From the larger context, it can be seen that the Jews in Jerusalem are the ultimate cause of Paul's incarceration by the Gentiles. And if that be the case, a prophecy is fully exonerated and that the words of Agabus conform to the actual events that take place. In other words, his approach to it is say, well, when, uh, when Agabus gives the prophecy and he says the Jews basically bind and deliver him over to the Romans, what he's saying that the Jews were the ultimate cause the ultimate cause. The Romans came in and did some of that, but they were the immediate cause. But the ultimate cause was the Jews. And Scripture uses that kind of language at times. Which would make, again, Agabus's prophecy totally 100% correct and accurate. Just for example, I'll give you an example of this ultimate cause, immediate cause. Second Samuel 24 now the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and it incited David against them to go number Israel and Judah. So the Lord is the ultimate cause. Because of His anger, He incited David to go number the people. But in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan moved against Israel and stood against Israel and moved David's heart to number Israel. But Satan is the immediate cause. God is the ultimate cause. So in the same way, the Jews are the ultimate cause. The Romans are the immediate cause. But Scripture can speak this way and be totally correct in what it says. So that's just another way to understand that uh, Agabus' prophecy came true just as it was stated. One other issue with this secondary gift of prophecy is one of the other arguments for it is that uh, Grudem, for example, will say in, in Corinth, this is, this is the grade B level gift of prophecy. It was a prophecy that could have truth in it, but also error mixed in it. And he believes there's support for that, like in this verse, 1 Corinthians 14.29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. And he says, well, why would the other prophets need to pass judgment if it was always 100% correct? Now, if there is a little truth and error mixed in, then they need to pass judgment to sift out what's true from what's false in the prophecy. That's the way he understands it. But that's not, that's not necessary to understand it that way at all. The reason why the other prophets need to pass judgment is because there were false prophets in the church. So it's not an issue of determining what part of a prophet's report is true and what part of it is false. Is, is it, are they a true prophet where it all comes true, or are they a false prophet when there's some of it that doesn't come true? So, for example, John in his epistle says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There were a lot of false prophets. That's why you need to pass judgment on the prophecies within the church. 
to determine who is a true prophet, if it all came true, and who is a false prophet if some of it didn't come true. So that, I think, is the better interpretation of this. You do not need to create this grade B level of prophecy where some of it's true, some of it's an error, and that's what's going on in these churches today. On top of that, let me just point out what I think are some of the dangers of this view. And let me say, some of the people, I know some of the people that teach and preach this view and hold to it sincerely. Uh, They are good brothers in the faith. I I don't want to in any way undermine. Now, some of them are out in the Looney Tunes land, but uh, some of them are good good people. I mean, we would have a lot in common with them, but I think there are dangers in, in supposing that there's this secondary gift of prophecy today. It's not authoritative. It's not inerrant. Like the Old Testament gift of prophecy that only the apostles had, but it's a New Testament gift which is less authoritative, less inspired, mixed with error. That's dangerous. It's dangerous on several levels. One of the dangers is that I believe it really lines up with liberalism. Now when I was in seminary, well, even before and after that, you get exposed to the teachings of liberalism. And what does liberalism? Their their attack against the Bible was always, well, you know, you can go to the Bible and the moral teachings of the Bible, those are good. We that that probably came from God. But all the details, like the numbers of how many people died in this war, the location, the names, well no, you know, there's a lot of mistakes in that area. And that's the way the liberals approach the Bible. So basically this New Testament gift of prophecy lines up with basically the liberal view of the Bible. Some of it's true. Some of it's false. And at that point, I think it's, it's undermining the authority of the Word of God, which is what we should all be standing on. So I think it's, it's something that we should be aware of and certainly be mindful of. But there's another danger, and that is that this gift of prophecy that can be a mixture of both truth and error is in line with false prophecies. False prophecies are usually have an element of truth in it. False prophecies have truth with error mixed in. That's what makes them so dangerous because most people... Don't discern the difference. That's how Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, seduce people. Some of what they say is in line with Scripture. But then they mingle in their false ideas and it becomes a false prophecy. So if you're going to tell me that the New Testament gift of prophecy can mingle truth and error, then what's the difference between that and a false prophecy? If but this is the problem with this whole gift. It's, it's, it's really hard to distinguish between this New Testament gift of prophecy and a false prophecy. See, Satan loves to mingle in truth and error together. You're all familiar with Matthew 4. When the Lord was out in the wilderness for 40 days. 
and Satan came up and tempted him three times. One of the temptations goes like this. Matthew 4, verse 5. The devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then he quotes Scripture out of the Psalms. He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now here's Satan quoting Scripture, but did you catch the misinterpretation? Did you catch the misapplication? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Can you see that here is truth presented with a wrong with a with a misinterpretation of that text applied to them, miscommunicated, but I still have the gift of prophecy. Then based on that, it's kind of at issue here, in my mind. Would you trust that? Can you discern the difference? Are you able to discern the difference? See, this is why it becomes dangerous. And Jesus, our Lord Jesus, and Paul, and Peter, and John, and Jude all warned the church that there would be false teachers and false error. How then can you identify a true prophet from a false prophet if they both can mingle truth with error? Who can? What I believe, and many others who who don't go along with Grudem's and others' view of this second type of a gift of prophecy, this New Testament gift, which can be mingled with truth and error, is really all they're doing is receiving impressions thinking that it's a prophecy from God or a word from God or a revelation from God. It's really just an impression. And they're elevating their impression to a level of divine authority in their mind, knowing that they can mingle some error with it. Now, can God lead us through impressions? He certainly can. But those impressions should never be trusted without being tested and evaluated by Scripture as a, with the authority of thus saith the Lord, or the Lord spoke to me. It's an impression. Now, you need to weigh it. You need to evaluate it. You need to go through the steps of discerning God's will. We looked at last week testing it with Scripture, getting wise counsel, evaluating it. But what they're getting are impressions, I think, and yet they're claiming it is a prophecy from God. Now again, I think this is, uh, this is something we need to be very careful. Verse 23, chapter 23, sorry, verse 16, says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. Okay, these are men claiming to be prophets. They claim to have the gift of prophecy. And God says, don't listen to them. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, they're getting an impression from their imagination in this case, it's from their own imagination, but they think it's thus saith the Lord. God says, don't follow those men. Don't listen to them. In verse 21, He says, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. 
Oh, they're quick to tell you the Word that God has. But I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. They prophesied. They, they claimed to be good prophets. But all the words that they claimed were coming from God was coming from their own imagination. In Jeremiah 23, verse 36, they're also indicted when it says, for you will no longer remember the oracle of the Lord because every man's own word will become the oracle. In other words, what's coming out of my mouth is God's word when it's not God's word. And you have perverted the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. So every man's own word will become the oracle. And this is one of the the things that also is a danger is that those who really get into this gift of prophecy, ultimately when they need guidance from the Lord, when they need some direction for a decision in the future or some problem that they need help with, they're going to be drawn more and more to go to a prophet and get a, get a word from a prophet rather than going back to the Word of God. Because everybody wants a personal... I mean, you know, we would love it if God... If I could pray to God and God would speak from heaven and give me detailed guidance on issues in my life. And, I don't, and that's what they want. I can understand that. But there are many warnings in Scripture to beware of that. It's the Word of God we build our life upon. So the, the, uh, the evaluation of the gift of Agabus, of his prophetic word given in chapter 21 of Acts and verse 11, I think came true just as he gave it. I think the attempts to find error in it are wrong. I don't think you, you can justify it. I understand the initial problems when you compare it with what's later on and happens in uh, this chapter. But in chapter 28, I think the Apostle Paul is referring back to this event and he says, basically what happened to me was exactly what Agabus said. When you look at the other reasonings to defend this idea of a New Testament gift of prophecy that can have truth and error in it, it's not convincing to me. I see problems with their interpretation of that. So I think we have to be very, very careful. What we are supposed to do is to build our life on the Word of God, on the Scriptures. I want to close by just reading some verses out of Psalm 119. And tell me, which is our firm foundation? Is it the Word of God or should we be looking to this New Testament gift of prophecy? Just some of the verses. I just These are some of them that speak to me. Psalm 119, verse 24, Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. You need counsel? Go to the Word of God. Verse 50, This is my comfort and my affliction that Your Word has revived me. You feel like you got the air knocked out of your cells? You feel like you've been knocked down? Go to the Scriptures. In my affliction, the Word of God revived me. I like the example of the, of the boxers in a boxing match. And one guy just, just gets waylaid and he gets knocked down and the bell rings and they drag him over and they put him on the bench. And the guy, like he's got the X's in his eyeballs, 
and someone breaks some smelling salts and puts it under his own, suddenly he's been revived. He's ready to go back out for the next round. The Word of God has that kind of effect upon us. Should have. When the Spirit of God is working through the Word. Verse 17, 72, sorry. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I mean, they go out and they conquer the enemy and they just plunder. They take all of their cattle, all their sheep, all their gold, all their weapons, all everything they have. Great spoil. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts. Not some of them, but I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. Can you say that about the New Testament gift of prophecy? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I'm exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Those who love your law have great peace. And nothing causes them to stumble. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Why would we trade the treasure of Scripture for a bucket of ore mixed with dross. Why would anybody go seeking after a prophetic word today mixed with truth and error when we have the infallible Word of God that can just reap blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon our soul when we go to it? This is our firm foundation. This is our trust. This is what we're to stand upon. It's the Word of God. So I think Agabus's prophecy was absolutely correct. I think Paul confirmed that it was. And it teaches us again of just the incredible blessing of having Scripture and why we need to build our lives upon that. And don't go seeking after the words of the prophets today that you can't determine whether it's a true prophecy or not. Because it's mixed with truth and error. That's like walking on thin ice. Can't trust it. We can trust the Word of God. And may God help us to do that. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank You for this opportunity to uh, engage in at least some consideration of things that are going on within the church. We do pray, Lord, that You would incline our hearts to turn to the Word of God. That we would uh, prize it and cherish it and love it 
and devote ourselves to it because it is inerrant, it is inspired, it is completely authoritative. It's what we're to live by, what we're to meditate upon, what should delight us, what should comfort us, what should counsel us. What is more valuable to us than all the riches of the world? So Father, incline our hearts to run to Scripture and to build our life upon it. So thank you for our time today. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters who differ with us in this area. We pray for Your grace. We pray for the ministry of Your Spirit uh, in illuminating them, protecting them. Lord, we do love our brethren Uh, Though we differ with them, Lord, we we ask Your mercy upon them and upon ourselves as well. So thank You again, Father, for the Word of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.